Let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We are making our way through the book of Hebrews. And now starting to be a little bit past the halfway point. And I'm going to read the whole chapter this morning. It's 28 verses. Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Verse 4. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Verse 11. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, from the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, for which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of law, a physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope to which we draw nearer to God. And as much as it was not without an oath, for indeed they became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it's fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. 
Lord, as we continue through this marvelous book and enter into chapter 7, Lord, we need your wisdom to understand what this word is saying. I need your grace to preach it clearly and accurately. And Lord, may our esteem and our devotion of and to Jesus Christ grow larger in accordance to who he truly is as depicted and taught here in this text. Lord, may you be glorified. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Have you ever seen a towel thrown in? Have you ever thrown a a towel in? If you've watched a boxing match or maybe a movie about a boxing match, perhaps you have seen two people boxing. One of them is just getting severely beaten up, and so the coach might take a white towel and he tosses it into the boxing ring, and that's him saying, we give up. We're done. It's over. I've seen that both in a boxing match, but also I saw that in a football game where the score was something like 72 to 0. And so the coach came out onto the field and tossed in a white towel and said, that's enough. We're never going to score. We give up. We forfeit. The game is over. Have you ever felt like throwing in the towel with your Christianity? Like you've come to a place where you're just done. You don't think that you can keep going on. Life is too difficult. Persecution is too hard. Sin has such a, a grip on you. You are ready to not surrender to Christ, but just surrender to the despair and to the world and just give up. That's what this chapter and this book is addressing. These Hebrew believers they were being heavily persecuted as well as though not departing from Christ, there was a great temptation that we see here in the Word to leave Christ. In some ways, they were acting immature. And in the book of Hebrews, and even in chapter 7, the Lord is teaching them not to throw in the towel, but to continue on with Christ. Don't give up. Don't go backwards, but grow forward. And I think we could say, even here in this chapter, we could summarize it in this way. Don't throw in the towel of your Christianity, but rather take hold of Christ even more. When this chapter ends, verses 25 to 28, talks about the intercession of Christ and that we should draw near to God through him. That's why we've said when things get tough and the world begins to press down upon us and maybe our despair gets gets heavier and we don't feel like fighting, that is when we fight the most. That is when we even take hold of Christ even more firmly. And we're going to see this point illustrated, depicted, and taught throughout Hebrews chapter 7. Now, I will be the first to confess, if there's a time during the day or the week where I just want to pick up the Bible and read, very few times have I said, I want to read Hebrews chapter 7 about Mechizedek because it encourages my heart. Before Thomas was born, I never thought to myself, I want to name my son Mechizedek. I've heard... I've heard Gideon, Thomas, Joshua, Daniel, David, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Malachi even. I have a friend that named his son Malachi. How come never Dick? Well, one of the reasons I think is because really he's not mentioned that much in the Bible. Hardly ever. Genesis, I think, 14 and Psalm 110. Just briefly. And then in the book of Hebrews, he pops up again. And I think for that reason, Hebrews chapter 7 at times can be deregulated, not focused on that much in terms of how it can help us to live the Christian life, but more to understand 
certain fine points of Christology, which is not necessarily bad, but Hebrews chapter 7 is given to us to help us to trust and live for Christ. Now, the way that we're going to look at this, and you can see this if you have your notes, it's basically we're going to look at only three points. The whole sermon has one point. Don't throw in the towel, but take hold of Christ more. That point will be elaborated on by three other supporting points. First, the emphasis of the text. We're going to look at that point this morning. And then the explanation of the text, which will take at least this week and maybe next week. Well, for sure next week. Maybe a week after that. And then finally, we'll look at the exhortations that arise from the text. Emphasis, the explanation, and then the exhortation. Now, though exhortation is third, we've already given the point of application. Don't give up on Christianity. Don't give up on Jesus. But rather, go to Jesus even quicker. Don't throw in the towel. Take heart of Christ even more firmly. Now, I said three points. As you look at this text, there could easily be 17 points. There is so much that is in here. I counted, I think my last count was that I had 17 points, but I tried to reshape it so there would only be three points. So, uh, emphasis, the explanation, the exhortation. The overarching theme is to take hold of Christ and don't throw in the towel. This morning, we're going to look at the emphasis and the explanation. So first, the emphasis of the text. Why is there 28 verses on Melchizedek? Already, Hebrews has talked about Melchizedek earlier. Chapter 5, verse 6, You are priests forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Already, he's talked about Melchizedek in different places. Now there's basically 28 verses that's dedicated to him. Why is that? Well, the reality is, the truth is, Hebrews chapter 7 is not primarily about Melchizedek. It's primarily about who? Jesus. <laughs> and so that helps me that Chapter 7 of Hebrews is not primarily about Melchizedek. It's primarily about Jesus Christ. And it's primarily teaching us and educating these Hebrew believers that Jesus Christ is superior and sufficient to the Old Testament Levi priests, Levite priests. So stay with Christ and keep going to Christ. Don't desert Christ. Jesus Christ is greater and better and the best in terms of being your minister. Nobody can minister to you and plead your case and take care of your sin better than Jesus Christ. That's what Hebrews 7 is primarily about. Now, grammatically, if we just look at verse 1, note that verse 1 starts with what word? Chapter 7, verse 1, starts with the word for. Chapter 6, verse 13, also started with the word for. That is, that chapter 7 actually is a subordinate section that's given strength and support to what was just said. Well, what was just said, verse 20 says, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, why was the writer of Hebrews talking about this? Because he had just said earlier, in chapter 5, verses 12, all the way through 6, uh, uh, verse 9, or 11 of chapter 5, to chapter 6, verse 12, he just said, don't be sluggish, but be imitators, and pursue Christ with faithful Patience. Don't remain a baby, but press forward. And even that God, the Spirit of God, believes that you're saved, but what you need to do is to continue to grow in Christ. Don't go backwards, go forward. 
And then chapter 7 then is giving help and strength and support for these Hebrew believers to keep going forward, to not drift away, to not remain babies, to really understand the assurance of their salvation and to gain that assurance in a strong way by going to Christ and keep going to Christ. And the stronger they get, even go more to Christ. And don't trade Christ in for something that's inferior. This is the emphasis on in chapter 7. The emphasis is not necessarily on what is the loins of Abraham and the Levites. What is that talking about? Federal theology, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that briefly and all this. Though that's there, that's not primarily what Hebrews chapter 7 is about. It's not even trying to figure out about Melchizedek and where did he come from because he just appears. Was he an alien? Because all of a sudden he's just there in the Bible. Just all of a sudden. Well, the main emphasis of the whole chapter is that Jesus is more superior and more sufficient than any human priest, even more superior and sufficient than Melchizedek. So trust him and always trust him and never leave him. That's the emphasis of chapter 7. So when we look at this chapter, we shouldn't come to it with, how can I understand this? There's no possible way that I can. you can understand it because you have the Spirit of God, and primarily it's about Jesus. And it was written to us in order that we can understand it, digest it, draw closer to Christ, and then live more fervently for Jesus. That's really the emphasis. Even theologically, this whole section would have been uh, very helpful for the Hebrew believers. And they must have been, when you look at this this whole book, but especially chapters uh, 9, 8, 7, and 6, and 5, and part of 4, it's talking so much about the Levitical priesthood, the Arianic priesthood. They, these believers, must have been really uh, attacked to go back to that old religion which they were part of. Remember, they had professed faith in Christ. The Spirit of God says in chapter 6, at least for most of them, verse 9, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. They had faith in God, but they're being severely tempted. Many of them have been placed in prison. They've gone to see friends and relatives in prison They've been in prison for the cause of Christ and they have their belongings stolen. And then they're being tempted to go back to their old Judaistic man-centered religion. Remember what we've said, that probably they had come to Christ and their lives got easier or harder. Harder. And there seems to be then this temptation from family and friends, from their culture, from their society, that it was better when you were following the Old Testament Jewish religion and not Christ. You became a Christian and life got more difficult. Give up Christ and come back to the temple. When is the last time you've been to the Jewish temple to offer a sacrifice? That could have been their temptation. And it seems, again, it was so strong because it's talked about so much. And it seems that they, working backwards from what we see in the text, that there would have been this temptation. You can see this in chapter 7 of Hebrews, that when is the last time you've been to a Levitical priest? When's the last time that really you've had this sacrifice yearly made for your sin? Perhaps when is the last time you placed your hands on that goat or that lamb that was sacrificed. Can you be sure that your sins are covered? And so then this chapter is written to them to say that better than the Levitical priests is Jesus. And here's why. And basically, what the Spirit of God is going to say is that there's an Old Testament president, Old Testament authoritative narrative that a priest 
that can deal with your sin doesn't even have to be Jewish. Doesn't even have to be from Levi. Doesn't have to be even from Aaron. Doesn't even have to be from Abraham. But can be from God. And that is authority and sufficiency and supremacy enough. And that's based on the Old Testament narrative. And that's even why you see verse 17, verse 21, Psalm 110 is quoted. Genesis 14 is referred to in the first few verses, but Psalm 110 is quoted regarding Christ and who Christ would be and who Christ is, a priest forever, ordained by God, but not by Aaron or Levi or Abraham or Moses. So chapter 7 is using Melchizedek is a type of foil saying that God has established at a certain time a priest that was outside of Israel greater than Abraham to do a great work. And that type of priesthood continues to this day. And his name is Jesus. The reality is, always in your Christian life and in my Christian life, Satan and your remaining sin and the world will try to distract you from Jesus Christ in some way. The world will, in your sin, will try to distract you from Christ, so then you drift away from Christ, and then eventually the temptation is to deny Christ. That is what these Hebrew believers were facing. And that's the emphasis of Hebrews chapter 7. And one way or another, the world and our sin and Satan will try to woo you away from Jesus. Life was better without Jesus. Life will be better without him. Come our way. Or it will just whack you. Boom! It will woo you or try to whack you away from Jesus. That's what was happening to these believers. And so the Spirit of God is writing them and also to us and saying, don't throw in a towel, but take hold of Jesus. This is the, the emphasis of this text. Now, with the time that we have left this morning, the explanation of the text. And now there's going to be many points. And we're just going to look at three this morning as we seek to understand this. And sometimes it will be chronological, not chronologically, sequentially in the text, and then at other times we'll, we'll skip around a little bit because points are repeated over and over again. But the first explanation of the text is this. Jesus Christ is the king, not just your priest. And that's why Jesus Christ is supreme, superior, and more sufficient than a Levite priest, an Arianic priest, an Old Testament Abrahamic Israelite priest, because Jesus is actually king and priest at the same time, like Melchizedek. So we see this in chapter 7. We see this especially in the first few verses, verses 1 and 2. You can see here where he says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High. And then in verse 2, you can see it says, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Melchizedek is a Hebrew word, and Malak means king. And Siddiq means righteous, or righteous one. So, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. King of righteousness. And you can see this just in the text itself. It even talks about, in verse 2, translation. If you look at verse 2, see that word translation? That is where we get our word hermeneutics from. Interpretation, it's hermemunes. 
But also, it says he's king of Salem, which is related to the word what? Salem. It sounds a little bit like what word? Yes, <laughs> Salem. Uh, even which relates a little bit to the word Shalom. Yes. Why? Why does it say king of Salem? Because it was Jerusalem, pre-Jerusalem. So before there was Jerusalem, there was Salem. Before David and even before Abraham was in the land of Canaan, there was a witness for the Lord. A true witness, a true believer that trusted the Lord. And that was Mechazeldic. And he was a priest. It says that in the text. Verse 1, priest of the Most High God, the one true glorious God. God had a witness in the middle of Canaan, a saved man that would do ministry for him. Where did he come from? The Bible doesn't say, but he's there. But even his very name means king of righteousness. Further, he was king of this city called Salem, and the word itself means peace. So already, you can see just with these words, king, righteousness, peace, Jerusalem, these are all pointing and foreshadowing to and of Christ. So this man, Melchizedek, he had two offices, that of a priest of God, but also of a king. Why is this important? Well, in the Old Testament and the law, the book of Deuteronomy, you will never have a king who is a priest or a priest who is a king. What happened to Saul in 1 Samuel 13, I think it is, or 15, when Saul offered up sacrifices? What happened? Did the Lord say, oh, thank you, Saul. Good job. When Saul offered up sacrifices, what happened? He got in really bad trouble. So normally, a king cannot have the office and the work of a priest of God. Normally. But Melchizedek was both. He was a priest and a king. But we see that this is true also of the Messiah, of Christ. Psalm 110. And we'll be going back to this psalm many times. But Psalm 110, which even Jesus Christ quotes the Pharisees, teaching his own lordship, his own divinity. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong zepter from Zion, rule. So you can see there, that's the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then also you see his priesthood, verse 4. The Lord, that is Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Then again, at the end, it talks more about his rule. So we see that Psalm 110 is pointing back to Melchizedek, but Psalm 110 is also pointing forward to the Christ that is to come. But we also see some glimpses of this, even in the precious section of Isaiah that we talk about, we sing about. I believe I might have preached it before. This great passage in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. And it talks about the throne of David. But yet he's this wonderful counselor that's going to rule forever and, and forever. Then, of course, we know the rest of the New Testament, what the New Testament says about Jesus Christ being Lord and, and King and Savior. 
So right away, what chapter 7 is saying is that this Melchizedek, his offices and his titles were not just a priest, but also a king. And Psalm 110 and Isaiah and there's other places, Zechariah and other places where the Old Testament talks about the, the anointed one, the, the chosen one, the, the Messiah, the one that, that the Israelis were looking for and others to redeem them would have three offices, the prophet, the priest and the king. The promised prophet, the promised king, and the promised priest, and that that would be the Christ. And certainly, the Messiah, the Christ, would be superior and more sufficient than any Levi-Arianic priest. And so that is the first point underneath this explanation, is why would you... Leave Christ, who is the promised king and the promised priest and the promised prophet, to go to someone or a system that is inferior. Why would you do that? Every priest, pastor, parent, politician, movement, program, is inferior to Jesus Christ by nature and by office. Jesus, by his nature and by his office, holds both prophet, priest, but also king. David was king and prophet. Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king. McKesseldick was king and priest, but not also prophet. But Jesus is. But this text is primarily saying he is superior, Jesus is, because he is king and priest. Now we'll say more about his kinghood in about two weeks, but we'll end this point with this. Why give up gold for, for glitter? If you could pick. Maybe all the banks are going to collapse. And you can pick a sack of gold coins or just a, like a sack of like fairy gold dust, you know, just a little just throw it into the air. Which would you pick? You would pick the gold because it has what? Significance. It has weight. It is superior, supreme, even sufficient. Jesus Christ is king. He is supreme. He is sufficient. He is superior. So we don't trade him in for any person or for any program or even for any other strategy. The number one strategy in all of life to overcome any sin and fall of happiness is to never give up Jesus Christ and to get closer and closer to him. That's the first part of this explanation of this text. Further, number two, Jesus Christ is superior to the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus Christ is greater than the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus Christ is better than the Abrahamic covenant. That covenant that God made with Abraham and to the people of Israel. Jesus Christ is greater than the covenant in the book of Deuteronomy. That's why it says later in verse 22, so much more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So then why the Spirit of God is telling you these Hebrew believers, would you depart from Christ, leaving something that's superior, and go to that which is inferior? That would be dumb. Why would you do that? That would be unwise. And the Spirit of God is going to explain why he means that. Verse 22, how can you say that the old covenant, that the Levitical priesthood is inferior to Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ wasn't a Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. And there are, even to this day, not just Jews, 
But there are people, but I think also uh, the Jewish culture can be very interested in what? Genealogies. My grandfather came from a Jewish family. Chuck is from a Jewish lineage. And he had mapped out all of his ancestors all the way back into Germany and the Askenine Jews. Well, it was not that much different in terms of being so interested in genealogies. That's why if you look at verse 3, verse 6, it talks about genealogies. Because they were very interested, and we see that right in Matthew 1, I think also Luke 3, right? Also the book of Numbers. Who are you related to? And so to help these Hebrew Christians to wade through that and to understand that from a biblical mindset, he's going to give them different points to help them to see that the Abrahamic covenant, though not bad, it was good, it had its purpose and it had its role, but it's inferior to the new covenant. It's inferior to Jesus Christ. But he's going to show that from one narrative from Genesis 14 of Melchizedek relating to Abraham. And he's going to use this basically two things, blessing and tithing. The fact that Melchizedek blessed Abraham and that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek shows that the Abrahamic covenant was inferior to God's priest. There wasn't even part of the Abrahamic covenant, all the promised people of God. He was outside of Israel. And yet, in a certain sense, he was greater than Dick was. First of all, this blessing, and you can see this in chapter 1. This great battle takes place. Maybe you remember back in Genesis where Abraham's nephew and family was kidnapped by a group of nations from the Far East. Abraham goes with a small band. I, I think small band meaning about 400 people all together, but their larger group would have been thousands upon thousands upon thousands. They pursue this enemy that's going up the Fertile Crescent, and they're going to try to go back all the way into Mesopotamia. Abraham catches them. God gives grace. They win the battle. They win the day. Even it's described as a slaughter. Now, when you look at the text, the text is saying, for this Melchizedek, he met Abraham, and he blessed him. That is, he blessed Abraham. That's why even later, if you just follow this text on down to verse 6, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Verse 7, but without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Now, clarification, this is not talking about a blessing of of praise, right? I, I can sing a song, bless you, God, bless you, Lord, you are great, bless you. The word bless means, at least the New Testament Greek, saying good things about. I'm going to say good things about God because he's good to me. That's one usage of the word bless. But another usage of the word bless is that I give, or somebody gives a spiritual blessing. I'm going to give a spiritual benefit. God blesses us in that way, Ephesians 1, 3. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessings. And so we praise him, we give him a blessing, but I can't give a spiritual type of benefit to God. I I can't pray for God. But here we see that Melchizedek is giving a type of a special spiritual blessing to Abraham. But the way that it's put, verses 6 and 7, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, it's saying that Melchizedek, his genetic roots, his his family roots, don't go back into Abraham and Abraham's family. They're outside of Israel. And yet, he blesses Abraham, and verse 7 says, 
without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So Abraham was less than Melchizedek. But Abraham was the father of faith. And he received all those promises. And even in verse 6, and blessed the one who had the promises. So that man, Abraham, Genesis 12, that God said, I call you, go to the land of Canaan, I will bless you from you, there will be a great nation. The promised plan of God flowed from Genesis 3.15 to Noah, to Abraham. Outside of Abraham, you have this other man that God saved, that, that preaches Yahweh, saves, the one true God, the most high God, he saves this priest and this king outside of geological consistency with Abraham and his family blesses these Jewish people that had all the promises. This is actually massive. You can maybe understand how the Pharisees would think about this, right? If you were a Pharisee and you heard this, I mean, there's salvation outside of being Jewish? Yes. In Christ, anybody can be saved. And even a priest doesn't have to be even Jewish. Melchizedek wasn't Jewish. He wasn't an Israeli. He certainly wasn't a Levite. And he blessed Abraham. Further, even tithing. The text talks about tithing. We can look at verse 4. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his choices, spoils. Verse 2 simply says, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all that he had. In italics it says spoils, of all the spoils. But verse 4 says, the choicest spoils. So out of the, the best, remember Abraham uh, collected a lot of loot from all these tribes and all these people that tried to kidnap his family. Well, Abraham got the best of that and the, the very best of the best, he gave a tenth of that to Melchizedek. He was, in a sense, tithing to Yahweh and the man that was representing Yahweh at that time was Melchizedek. And you can see here how this is developed in verse 5. It says, Levites, the, the sons of Levi, they would, by God's word, by God's command, in order to sustain them, they would receive a tenth from the people. And they were descended, of course, from, from Abraham. But there is an Old Testament narrative, an Old Testament theology in, in the Bible there is a man, uh, Mechazeldick, he collected a tenth from Abraham. Then verse 8 is going to explain and expand that more. In this case, mortal men, that is the Levites, receive tithes. But in this case, one receives him of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins, that is, in his in his DNA of his father, when Melchizedek met him. He's saying, genetically and genealogically, the Levites, in a sense, paid a tithe already to Melchizedek, because Abraham is the father. He's the great, 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 great grandfather of the tribe of Levi and all the Levites. When Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, he was honoring Melchizedek and seeing Melchizedek as the priest of God and representing God as the priest king. So when Abraham paid the tithe, in a certain sense, in terms of genealogy and DNA, in terms of the genealogical list of all the different tribes, in a sense, it's like the Levites already paid it a tithe to Melchizedek, saying that Melchizedek is greater than the tribe of Levi. 
That's what is being taught here. That's the the point. That family line and tribe line, the Levites, through Abraham, already admitted and said that there is a non-Jewish, non-Israelite, non-Abrahamic priest that is greater than the Levites. That's already been declared. That's the point. He's not a Levite, Mechizedek, but he is a king and priest, like Jesus. Now, just two quick clarifications. If you look at verse 8, it says, Of whom it is witness that he lives on. Is Mechizedek alive today? Was Mechizedek alive during the time of the early church? No. But it says he lives on. In what sense then does he live on? Well, if you look back at verse 8, when it says the witness is of whom it is witnessed, of whom it is testified that he still lives, he still lives in a sense that he foreshadows and he was pointing to who? To Christ. And so his ministry as being prophet and, I'm sorry, priest and king, that continues to this day through that final king and priest, Jesus Christ. In that sense, he still lives on. Melchizedek was the type. Christ is the anti-type. He is the fulfillment of the foreshadowing of Melchizedek. That's what it means when it says, of whom it is witnessed that he still lives on. That's why verse 17 says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus lives not just in a rhetorical way, but in a real way. Melchizedek lives in a rhetorical way through Jesus Christ. But Jesus really lives today. That's what it means when it says he still lives on. A second point of clarification is when it talks about, and maybe this is now clear, maybe it's not unclear for you, but when he talks about the loins, not the lions, I used to read that as the the lions, it's the loins, that is that the Levites were in the loins, so to speak, of Levi. See that in verse 9. The, the point here, though, that they can be made at, at different times and I mentioned this briefly, is that, well, let me say it this way. I was in a class one time at Master's College, and the students, before the professor came, wanted to make the class go longer so we wouldn't have a quiz. So before the professor came, they discussed what questions should we ask the professor to get him just to keep talking on and on and on. And it was about federal theology in the sense of where does our sin nature come from? Is our sin nature passed biologically down from one to another? Or is it more just representational, federal? And so then based upon this text, when it talks about that Levi was in the loins of his great-great-grandpappy, Abraham, verse 10, for he was still in the loins of his father, when Melchizedek met him, is it our sin nature biologically passed down? Or is it representational? And so there's books and there's debates and it really gets, you know, deep down into all this huge discussion. And so what happened is the professor came, the question was asked, and we didn't have the quiz because that was talked about the whole time. And my point is we have to be careful because... That's not what this chapter is about. It's not about getting into all this nitty-gritty and is it federal representation, is it by... No, the point that's being made is that genealogically, in terms of their family tree, if you want to say genetically, in a sense, the Levites through Abraham, their family, the, the Abraham extended family, honored Melchizedek, saying that you are... You are worthy of these ties. You are the priest of God. And the Holy Spirit is making this point is that he wasn't part of the 
promised people of God in a sense of belonging to the tribe, the family, group of Abraham. He wasn't. But he was still a true believer, the true king and priest of God. And therefore, based upon this text, we can say that there's no family and no heritage. There's no special history that you need to belong to. You don't need to belong to anybody except Jesus. That's what this text is saying. You don't need to belong to anybody except for Jesus Christ. Further, as we wrap up, who can make you complete is Jesus. Not a spouse. A spouse won't complete you. Children won't complete you. Your favorite job won't complete you. Favorite political president won't complete you. Favorite church won't complete you. Only Jesus Christ. Because he is your priest and your king. And as it says here, he lives to make intercession for you. We'll stop here for today, but let me ask this question. Are you closer to Jesus than ever before? If not, why not? He lives to make intercession for you. And he is your king and priest. Why not seek to be closer to him than ever before? Trust him. Nobody has your back the way that Jesus Christ does. Nobody is for you the way that Jesus Christ is. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we're just touching the surface of this. Lord, may this, in one sense, kind of obscure, pushed into a corner text, really take hold of our hearts and draw us closer to you, Lord, for you are worthy as our priest, prophet, and king, Lord. To you be the glory. Amen.